Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser. Welcome to the Security Clearance Careers Podcast. I'm the senior editor of clearancejobs.com. Today, we're pleased to have with us Andrew Levine. Andrew is a former background investigator who worked on the U.S. Office of Personnel Management contract from March of 2007 through August of 2014, conducting field work in the busy Washington, D.C. area. Andrew's here with us today to talk about sweating the small stuff in your security clearance application, how small screw-ups can cause big delays in security clearance processing times. It seems the devil really is in the details, so to speak. So, Andrew, one of the things you mentioned in the article was the importance of including any aliases, including nicknames or maiden names on your SF-86 security clearance background investigation. What are the risks if an individual fails to list all, all of those names on their application? Thank you for having me. I want to use the word risk lightly. A lot of times, and probably over the course of this conversation, when we talk about risks, it really is going to pertain to how much it delays your investigation. In some cases, that's actually critical for the applicant who has a time-sensitive position and they need to get their clearances through quickly. The biggest issue with not giving your AKA or your alias, which, which does include basic nicknames from your friends, is that if you don't provide that initially, the Office of Personnel Management is not going to be able to properly conduct all the records checks that they go through as a matter of routine. That would include basic law checks at your local courthouse, residential records, employment records, and so forth. So there's the typical situation where you don't provide the name at the outset of the investigation. We find it out later. We have to go back and then go through a records check through each and every one of those places to see if there's a record under those names. So it's going to add time onto your investigation. Where you really run into a problem is if you don't provide that that alias and, for instance, we go over to the local courthouse and we find that there's a hit. When I say a hit, that you have some sort of arrest or conviction um, and it was under that alias, then you run into an entirely new territory potentially material falsification, which is essentially an automatic disqualifier for your background investigation. And then just practically speaking, on a daily basis, investigators go door-to-door at residences. Sometimes they show up at employments with very little information about who you worked with. Everybody at these given locations might know you by, say, Frank, which is your middle name, but your birth name is John. And when you go around asking everybody, if they knew John and nobody seems to know you, well, then you run the risk that we're not going to be able to interview anybody at a given activity. Uh, and then there's no coverage. And again, it leads to further delay and an enormous hole in your investigation. Definitely. That that definitely makes sense. Makes makes it my investigation seem a lot easier. One name, no nicknames. I hadn't even been married yet. I made it so easy on the investigator. You didn't even have to work to find me. My next question for you is another topic that came up is making sure the SF-86 matches the data on your resume, um, which I don't think, you know, for a lot of job seekers, they certainly are, are aware of their resume, but they don't think of, about it as being linked with their SF-86 or their background investigation in any way. So why would that be important? So and this is very nuanced, and this only started coming up in my final couple of years of conducting investigations. And this is actually consistent with what they ask for on the SF-86, which is make sure that all your dates and locations match up. It's not critically important in the sense that you're going to be disqualified for not uh, for not filling out your resume properly. 
But what happens is you submit your SF-86 and you submit your resume and then we conduct your investigation. Say the investigator misses that there are discrepancies between the resume and the investigation. Then it's reviewed. It raises, I don't want to call it a, a red flag, but a yellow flag questioning, well, why wasn't this employment um, that was listed on the resume, why wasn't it listed on the SF-86? Or why were these dates different? So at a minimum, we have to go back. Uh, it could be weeks later after we thought we were already moving towards the close of your investigation and then recontact the subject to figure out that information. Why do we want to figure out that information? Well, it's always just to be safe. So if you didn't list something on your SF-86, there's always that chance that somebody purposely didn't disclose that, say, employment because they left that employment under unfavorable circumstances. More often than not, that's not going to be the case. What we find a lot is people put on the resume, say, certain unpaid internships that shouldn't even be listed on the SF-86 in the first place, but we do need to make sure during the personal interview that that's the case. Um, so anytime there's a discrepancy within the paperwork, we have to find out the reason for that discrepancy. Usually those discrepancies are innocuous, but in that you know one time out of 100 times where there's a specific reason why the applicant failed to disclose it, we need to get to the bottom of that. Um, and then again, uh, anytime we have to go back and find out why you didn't list something properly, it's probably going to be weeks, if not months, after you first met with your investigator. And that is an eternity when you're talking about the timeline of investigation. Talking about job locations, and that's definitely another nuanced issue, but a common issue, particularly for contractors who may have a company headquarters in one site, but maybe their actual work site is a government office. How do contractors in particular deal with that, and how should multiple job sites worked at in the same company be listed to best help a background investigator move through that investigation quickly. Yeah, this is probably the single biggest administrative or technical issue that I came across during my seven and a half years of doing investigations. And to be fair, the instructions on the SF-86 are not very clear, but the way you should fill it out is pretty logical. So if you do work for a contractor, for instance, say it's a big contractor like Khaki, what you first want to do is find out where your employer location is, not your job location. Your employer location should default to wherever they maintain your personnel records. That's the reason that's listed on the SF-86. Honestly, this is as easy as speaking with your security official speaking with a supervisor, or calling HR directly before you fill out your SF-86. So you're going to list that under the employer section, and then where you actually work, you're going to list in the job location, parentheses, if different than employer location. So that's going to be the site where you are on a day-to-day -day basis. What you have with contractors a lot is you'll have them working or roving at multiple locations at the same time, or they will get on and off contract over the course of a couple of years. So I'll work, say, at the Pentagon for two years. Then I'll move over to the Navy Yard for the subsequent two years and so forth and so on. And I'll still work for the same employer. You want to handle that situation in the same way. What you're going to do is for the first two years, say you worked with Khaki, you'll list the, empl the employment location, which is where your records are held, and list that job location. And then you will then fill out for your next entry the same employer location for those dates. And then you want to delineate it for the new job location. And you'll do that for each subsequent 
job location. OPM will be able to figure out that they only need to do one records check at the same location. It'll signal to them or signal to the investigator that they only need to go to the employer location once. But what it will allow the investigator to do is from the outset of the investigation, it'll send the proper investigators to the appropriate locations uh, right off the bat. So if your personal interview is, say, uh, a few weeks or uh, over a month after you submitted your paperwork, um, we could actually get people out there potentially before we even sit down and meet with you, which can block weeks, if not months, of your investigation. So you've written about um, security clearance verifiers and references on our site. Uh, what are the risks of failing to list a verifier when it's required or listed on the application? So they ask you to list three references or people you know well. And I can tell you from personal experience that OPM far and away finds this to be the most important information that you put down as far as the verifiers that you list. The reason being is it's very easy, um, you know, when you go to work every day to pull people who know you in this one context and get pretty straightforward answers from them. Outside of the occasional instances of misconduct, you're generally going to get the same sort of interviews. What OPM really wants to know is what are you doing when you're not at work? What are you doing when you're not in school? Uh, and the people that you list in that reference section are essentially your friends, the people you socialize with. Not everybody has a big social life, but they do do something when they're not not working. 99% of people do it. And for some reason, this is just a problem for people to fill this part out correctly. So that, that just explains the general importance of that area. And OPM will hold up uh, an investigation for weeks or months before they get X amount of people who can discuss what you do when you are not working. So it behooves you to gather that information beforehand, put forth uh, put down, excuse me, the people who know you well. And when I say people who know you well, two things you don't want to do. You don't want to list some judge just because they're uh, a good character reference. You want to list somebody who best knows the ins and outs of what you're doing uh, during your free time. Uh, and that might not even be your best longtime friend. A lot of times people put down people that they've known for 20 years, but they live in another part of the country. They're a college friend, they're a high school friend, and they talk to them on the phone occasionally they see them maybe once a year in person. Those are not the best sources. We want the people uh, that are seeing you at least monthly, hopefully, maybe once every couple of months. Uh, if they're seeing you weekly or daily, that's great. But those are the type of people that you want to put down in those sections. It's, it's far and away the most important set of verifiers that you're going to put down. Now, as far as the educational verifiers and the employment verifiers, well, there's this basic assumption that you should know who you worked with if you're at any place for any sort of extended period, and you should know who you went to school with. These are kind of the building blocks of your background investigation. So it is critical that you are able to list a supervisor, that you're able to list a professor at an education or somebody you were friends with at an education. Anytime you're, say, at an activity for a year, two years, and you're unable to list a supervisor that you had for the majority of that time, well, it immediately raises this question, what happened at this employment? What happened at this education that they weren't able to list anybody? 
And again, it might be innocuous. The applicant might have just been a little bit lazy in filling it out. But that is not the sort of territory that you want your investigation to head into when it could have very easily been avoided by spending an extra few hours before submitting your paperwork of gathering this information and putting it down on your paperwork. Now, I'll, I'll give you this disclaimer. Employer and supervisors move, coworkers move. That's understood. The investigator should be doing the majority of the legwork, but the applicant should be working hand-in-hand hand with the investigator to make sure that it's as smooth a process as possible. So put your best foot forward. And then let the investigator take it from there is, is always the general rule of thumb. Yeah. And again, I was always under the impression that listing a reference was required. Um, but it seems that in your time as investigator, you perhaps found, I mean, do candidates just leave this information off? Do they not include verifiers? And what will that, how will that impact their investigation? Everything is required in the sense that, you know, for one, the equip system, which is one of the most frustrating technological uh, systems known to man, will not let you advance if you don't list anybody. So more, what you're going to find are people are going to list um, like inappropriate verifiers. So in the reference section, they're going to list a sibling. Or in the uh, employment section, they're going to list a subordinate rather than a supervisor. Or they will list, um, the, say, the one supervisor that they really liked that was their supervisor for two months but not the supervisor who was there who was there for the other three years of their employment. And then we go in and we do our investigation, and in the course of our due diligence, we wonder how is it possible that this person did not list this person who worked with them for three years. Then, for example, we find out, oh, they had a personality conflict with them, or we find out in the record they were reprimanded by this person several times. And then you move into this entirely separate territory of falsification or withholding important information. And that's where you run your, you run a risk of not actually getting your security clearance. You can avoid yourself, you can avoid all this headache just by doing some extra administrative work. There should never really be an instance where uh, a, a verifier section is left completely blank, but it should be logical as to who you are listing in the appropriate sections. I try to think back to being a security clearance applicant and filling out that information. I, I do think that there is a lot of hesitancy and fear about what to include and who to list and who might remember what. And and I think a lot of times better to think it through, but just be straightforward and also not trying to hide things. Falsification becomes a much bigger issue than perhaps, you know, a friend who knows what you really did in college. So, yeah. And, and I'll say this, having gone through it five times myself for, for various positions, uh, there is a lot of anxiety, right? Like you don't want um, say the employer you worked with for six months is a 19 year old wondering why people are showing up with badges at their employment. Um, what I will say is you're one of hundreds of thousands of people who have gone through this process before without incident. And the other thing is it's just something that you have to give up for what is OPM's legitimate need to find out who you are. Uh, odds are you're probably never going to see that supervisor again from six years ago. Um, so if you have that information, give it. If you don't have that information, make every attempt you can to track it down and then disclaim that somehow, uh, say, in the optional comment section on the SF-86, and then you can discuss it during your personal interview as to why you don't have that information. I could tell you time and again, 
I've seen that, you know, that short part-time employment from quite a few years ago, we just don't find anybody. And that's, that's fine. Um, but we have to make sure that both the applicant and the investigator made every reasonable effort possible to track down that information. Yeah, and you just mentioned the optional comment section. So how should that optional comment section be used by an applicant? So the most sorely underused uh, part of the SF-86, uh, and on my own SF-86s that I filled out, I mean, I pretty much write a complete narrative for each activity. I, I overdo it a little bit, but I want to make it as easy for the investigator as possible. You'll see in just about every section, there will be an optional comment section. This is your opportunity to disclaim any and everything that isn't clear based on what you're allowed to put for each activity in the SF-86. Remember, SF under SF-86 is standard form. So these are the same forms for the thousands and thousands of people who fill these out. So they're only going to allow you to list one supervisor for each activity. And for, say, that instance where you have to list a prior arrest, they're only going to allow you to list the arrest details, but they're not going to allow you to uh, list some of the mitigating factors or circumstances surrounding them. So you want to use that Anywhere that you just can't put as much information as you'd possibly like. For instance, uh, it's especially helpful in the employment section. I always get the question, uh, why can't we list more than one person? We can only list one supervisor. Well, who do I list? I had the my most recent supervisor for three months, and then I had the other supervisor that I worked with for two years. So list the one supervisor in the section that's already allotted, and then you could put the other supervisor in the optional comment section, explain I worked with this person for X amount of years or X amount of months, give their phone number, their address, and then you could also list other coworkers. Another situation where you might want to put something in the optional comment section is to explain, say, why your job location is in another state from where you live, and you could actually explain well, I actually flew in on a, uh, say, bi-weekly basis to this job location, and then I worked out of my home during the alternate weeks. And why is this important? Again, the earlier we can find this stuff out, uh, and when I say uh, when I say the earlier we can find this stuff out, I mean before you actually sit down with your investigator, the less work there's going to be on the back end. Uh, the quicker OPM can streamline these investigations, and the quicker you can start your job or have access to whatever you need access to. So basically this whole conversation, we've been talking about the risks for an applicant who turns in a sloppy SF-86 versus a clean SF-86. So that sloppy SF-86 might have missing information, inaccurate places, um, other problems. What's really the risk of that, of not taking your due diligence in, in when you complete your application? Technically, it's my understanding that if you so blatantly fill out your uh, SF-86 incorrectly to where it's not even uh, plausible as the information you put down, then you're talking about an honesty issue, then it moves into that material uh, falsification area. I am not aware of any instances where that came into play and someone was actually denied uh, their security clearance uh, based on sloppily filling out their paperwork. But I have heard of the, the instances where, for instance, uh, uh, I think I think the issue came up with uh, military applications where recruiters were actually uh, either filling out SF-86s on behalf of of recruits 
or telling them improper information to put down, and then that became a very serious falsification issue. I never found out exactly what winds up happening with those cases, but I do know uh, that was a major problem. Uh, but the bigger issue is efficiency. So a lot of times what happens is when you fill something out incorrectly one time, uh, for instance, you don't fill out the proper job location, right? So uh, I've been working in Virginia uh, as my job location, but my employer location is in Tennessee. And I only list the employer location, you know, six times across the board on my SF-86. Uh, then it, it may take months after the fact, until months after the fact, excuse me, that we discover that. And then we have to report, report this up the ladder, and then they have to reassign back out to each of those newly discovered job locations. That may take a few weeks to get into an investigator's hands in, at that specific location. And then that investigator, even though they should be expediting it, they have their own caseload. It might take a few weeks for them to find all the necessary coworkers or supervisors at that location. And then however long it takes for them to write up the report and then get reviewed again. So if you look at that from start to finish, it's an unnecessarily long process. And then that's just assuming that once we've completed that, that there aren't going to be any other questions that the reviewers or the adjudicators have. So it can really, really hamstring an investigation. And if you're in a situation where, for instance, you know, you're going to work on a temporary job and they need to get your clearance through within, say, a few weeks or a couple of months, you might not be able to get that job in the first place or have access to what you need access to simply because you left out some very basic information on your SF-86. I know a big source of anxiety for a lot of people is what is going on with my investigation. And then when it drags on for a few months, they're worried that some major issue came about. But the reality is it's a lot of uh, busy work and plugging in holes in your investigation that could have been plugged in before the SF-86 ever got into your investigator's hand in the first place. That's great advice. I think at the end of the day, a lot of people want to speed up the security clearance process, it's a big question that we get on our site, and, and one of the best ways they can do that is just by submitting a very detailed, efficient, well-completed SF-86. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you personally that, because as an investigator, we always you always have your war stories about what were the terrible investigations. And by and large, the ones that dragged on were not the ones that were full of issues, but had well-written, cohesive SF-86s because we knew about the issues at the outset. We knew who to speak to to resolve those issues. And you know, whether it was favorable adjudicator or not, I don't know, but those investigations were closed rather quickly. Uh, the ones where I discovered uh, a ton of new activities during the course of the personal interview – uh, where I was tracking down references for weeks or even months at a time. Those are the ones that dragged on, and those are the ones that were truthfully painful to do, and they should have been the easiest. Well, thank you again so much. I think, like I say, you've definitely revealed a lot of information and, and provided some really valuable tips to our job seeker audience and our security clearance applicant audience for those folks who are completing their SF-86 for the first time or maybe just up for reinvestigation and realizing that they need to be a little more detailed this next time around thanks to things that have happened in their history. So, again, I appreciate your time for joining us, Andrew. Anytime, Lindy. Thank you again for joining us for the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, giving you all the news you need to know about the security clearance process, 
background investigation procedures, security clearance careers, the intelligence community, and more. Please join us for our next episode. We hope you'll tune in. Bye-bye.